This is the John Oakley Show podcast. And away we go. Let's get it started. Tuesday edition of the Oakley Show. Great day for talk radio and weather-wise, cloudy skies. Look at that. We got some snow coming down here, too. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I guess I wasn't that used to seeing this uh, being down south all last week. It's got to come as a bit of a, a shock and all. But actually, the, the most shocking thing that I saw earlier today was a postie coming up my walk. I couldn't believe it. There was a guy actually with a pouch of mail and uh, dropped some off in addition to, of course, the requisite flyers keeping the corp afloat. But yeah, that was kind of interesting after so many weeks of these rotating strikes and uh, not getting the license renewal sticker in a mail, you know, like a doofus, I'm carrying around a receipt in case the cop stops me to show that I paid for this thing about six weeks ago. It still had not arrived. So I'm really basically cheating the hangman at this point. I felt like a scofflaw every time I'm driving, you know, back and forth, to and from work. You have to protect this delicate piece of thermal paper. Well, yeah, this little plastic sticker. But I now I'm street legal. Boy, I, I little beadlets of sweat on the brow. I can just wipe those clean. I'm good to go again. So there you go. Hit the reset button. But that's because it was hung up in a post office, which, as I understand, there are many more such parcels and packages and letters and what have you. They say uh, the post office does. There are 500 tractor trailer loads of mail being held up in parked vehicles at Canada Post facilities. And so there's a backlog that has to be processed. Now, whether or not it'll be done with dispatch remains to be seen because apparently members of the union are not too pleased that the back-to-work legislation that passed late yesterday and went into effect today at noon, they're going to fight it in court. Apparently, that's one of the uh, challenges, I guess, that's about to be faced, the union's going to court. Now, if they win, what do they do? Go back on strike. So whether this is constitutional or no uh, remains to be seen, but something we'll address during the uh, course of the program because... Well, it's one of those concerns that we have, uh, and insofar as a concern, I guess, you know, these people who are wanting to fight it, this back-to-work legislation, what, they don't want to go back to work, or they feel like their their rights are being abridged, I think. That's what one of the complaints is, you know, the right to bargain, and uh, since this may be arbitrated, which tends to favor the union anyway. I don't understand. I would think that they just look down the road to Oshawa and say, <laughs> pretty happy to just have a gig to go back to. Whereas we know everything is reeling in the city to the east of us. Meanwhile, out west, you know, this is kind of interesting because the two are not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive stories because the government of Ontario, as well as the feds, have ponied up a fairly significant chunk of change to Maple Leaf Foods, which is a private company. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation are railing against this, the fact that the province has announced $62.5 million of taxpayer money to Maple Leaf Foods, to build a chicken processing plant in London. They're going to shutter the one in Brampton. Uh, There's another one, I'm trying to remember, in the uh, vicinity here that they're also planning to close down in like 2022 and move everything to a more upgraded, innovative kind of approach to... uh, I love what the Canadian Taxpayers Federation are really railing against this, which I get. And by the way, our friend Kevin Gaudet, who used to be the head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, is going to be with us on the panel after 5.20 and topics worthy of discussion. This is one such. As they write, uh, usually corporate welfare is rationalized as job creation, but this case is a unique innovation. 300 employees are getting fired. 
Well, see, they're making it more efficient. That's the same rationale behind General Motors closing the Oshawa plant. They want to be more efficient, agile, and uh, address the way people will be uh, consuming in the future, which is what Maple Leaf Foods is effectively saying as well. They're going to be selling uh, processed chicken parts, or as the Canadian Taxpayers Federation put it, while taxpayers have many questions, apparently none of the decision makers involved considered this glaringly obvious point. Why would it be unreasonable for a business such as Maple Leaf to simply pay for its own processing plant itself, especially in the dynamic, innovative, strategic industry of cutting up chickens <laughs> so this i you gotta like aaron woodrick and the folks at the canadian taxpayers federation for being a little snarky here but the point is well made whether or not government largesse should be a part of it and this gets me back into the general motors scene because while we know that we've bailed them out in the past most recently in the meltdown of 09 10.8 million collectively feds and us here in a problem while well, we're all one taxpayer let's not kid ourselves this is something that uh, apparently General Motors wasn't really looking to uh, get any more of this largesse because it became a case of just wanting to upend the operation and head south. Maple Leaf Foods upending their operation in Brampton, one other plant in the GTA, and they're heading out west, which answers the ultimate question. Why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the new plant out London way, that's why. <laughs> And so, uh, but General Motors, the uh, story out of Oshawa, it's not a good one, needless to say. And we've heard from various and sundry on that front. Uh, it bears repeating that, you know, Jerry Diaz, who was with us yesterday, was obviously uh, quite upset. And uh, he's outraged by what he feels is persistently shabby treatment by General Motors. Give a listen. I had it my way, uh, and I've, I've spoken to the head of the UAW. I'd shut down every General Motors assembly plant in Canada, the United States, to get their attention. I'm sick and tired of all of our jobs. Same with the UAW, losing all of our jobs to Mexico. I'm sick and tired of the fact that they announced the closure of assembly plant here in Canada, four in the United States, not doing anything in Mexico. So it's just the same old argument, but we've had for the last 15 months over NAFTA, and we've had enough. All right. So he's at a breaking point, or this might be the breaking point. He also goes on to say that the government, the government needs to stick up for the workers. The governments gave General Motors $10.8 billion uh, just 10 years ago when they were in bankruptcy. Certainly they must be able to appeal to their element of common sense. Mexican government didn't give them a dime. So this is really about the government saying, okay, we've had enough. Uh, you haven't repaid all of the money that you were loaned. You're going to have to pay it back. But over and above that, we're going to work with the union, and we're going to challenge the fact that you're not putting more jobs in Canada. So what he was really angling towards, and I saw his press conference earlier today as well, where he was talking about uh, Mexico being the beneficiary of all of these moves, and they don't build uh, as or don't buy near as many cars as they produce and flood the North American market. Whereas in Ontario, for example, in Canada, we tend to uh, build as many uh, as we buy. And therefore, this is a, a lucrative market for General Motors. So don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You should be uh, patronizing the people who build your product and buy your product. And I was thinking to myself now, and, and it's not necessarily an original thought because I saw op-eds have, uh, and there are people uh, like, well, Andrea Horvath, who are suggesting that the way to get around this, the workaround, is if General Motors won't play ball in Canada, 
then we ought to do something domestically, domestically to uh, ensure that there's a, a Canadian automotive industry wholly owned and operated by. Does that make sense to you? I mean, we're talking about nationalization here. There was an op-ed piece, as a matter of fact, in the Toronto Star today. Saw this. Uh, David Olive, business columnist. It's time for a truly Canadian automaker. And somebody who was there at the time uh, told me just recently, within the last hour or so, that back in 1979, when Lee Iacocca uh, was threatening to take Chrysler out of Windsor, the Pierre Trudeau government at the time and uh, Mr. Coots, remember Cutesy Cootsy, <laughs> who was his chief, I guess he was his chief of staff at the time. And uh, they had uh, threatened to, OK, if that's what you're going to do, if that's your serve, here's our return. We're going to set up a Canadian auto manufacturer. And I don't know if this part was real, but uh, we're going to call it the Beaver. <laughs> the beaver would be on the road uh, in due course and would be basically eating your grass and everything else that beavers are apt to munch on. So this is one of those things where uh, if you decide that they didn't want to play ball in Canada, Canada is self-sufficient in that regard because we have the talent, you know, to wit. Uh, look how good we were with the Avro Arrow. And then, you know, that was shuttered because, and you can get into the whole history of it, I'm sure, uh, on another program at another time, but uh, <laughs> because the Americans pretty much said stand down on this. But if we wanted to, and, uh, you know, if we had that kind of Trumpian bravura of economic nationalism, that might support the impetus for getting a Canadian, a wholly owned Canadian automotive manufacturer up and running. And that's my question, whether or not that makes sense to you, because the caveats that I would issue, uh, well, we just bought a pipeline for four and a half billion dollars out west because we couldn't get anything built. And the company that actually was privately controlled one down there in Houston, I guess a public company, but it was a private concern. They didn't want anything more to do with it because too many hoops and hurdles and red tape and all the rest of that nonsense. But we bought it and we own it. And. By golly, we're going to make it work, according to the prime minister. So is it something that you feel is practical, uh, reasonable under the circumstances, makes a lot of sense? And I know uh, there's that other school of thought that believes, you know, you just if it can't survive on its own or there's a corporate entity, the, the parent company says this is not economically viable for where we want to go. And uh, we're trying to shape shift into uh, a more modern entity. So the old gas guzzler ain't going to make it. That's passe. We're shutting up shop and we're leaving. We're pulling up stakes next year. Uh, see you later. Bonsoir la visite. However, you know, in Oshawa, and I read this letter from the city of Oshawa today and the mayor, John Henry, signed off. He was suggesting that we do have the capacity to really be geared up for the future and whatever it is that General Motors would want to make. Well, and if not them, then maybe this Canadian entity, Beaver 2.0, you know, because you've got the University of Oshawa uh, Institute of Technology there, they're cranking out uh, a lot of graduates with this high-tech, you know, very progressive, innovative uh, approach to things. And the Canadian workforce were told, hell, I mean, the people who were manning the lines there in Oshawa are granted uh, the consideration of being the tops in their field globally and have won prestigious awards. So could we do it? Would we want to do it? Is it something that maybe speaks to 
economic nationalism and independence, apart from being a branch plant kind of a situation where we're beholden to the vagaries of, well, the market and corporate hindquarters out of Detroit or wherever these multinationals now that tell us, uh, you know, how high we're going to jump and when. Would you like to see that? I'm going to open the lines on that note as a first order of business. We're going to talk to Andrew Shear a little later in the program. He also is as concerned as every other politician seems to be, and not without good reason, but uh, is there anything the politicians can practically do to forestall what seems to be the inevitable? I don't know. I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. Uh, I seriously doubt whether or not Brother Diaz can get his brethren and sister and stateside with the UAW to act in concert or solidarity and shut plants out and get GM's attention. I mean, Donald Trump still wields the biggest stick, and he's pissed because they're, they're pulling up stakes and plants in Ohio and Michigan, two of the swing states that won him the election. They're critical. Ohio, absolutely so. How Ohio goes, so goes the presidency. But Michigan was one of those vital swing states that cost Hillary Clinton the presidency. So he can't afford to see them pull up stakes, so he may still have something to say on the matter. As Larry Kudlow, his chief economic advisor, said in his noontime presser that I was watching on TV, uh, Trudeau and Trump are effectively on the same page as far as this is concerned. They're both angry at General Motors. But is there enough, I won't say anger, but uh, cause to want to make, if not a common cause, certainly an understanding that economic nationalism has a role to play in all of this. And therefore, we should. Now, I'm not advocating this. I'm just wondering if you think that's something that's practical against the backdrop of General Motors eventually quitting Canada entirely, as Mr. Diaz said in his press conference in the lunch hour. It's, it's the inevitable. They're still in St. Catharines and Ingersoll. But he said it's just a matter of time. The writing's on the wall. So do you think we ought to go with some kind of domestic? And this is how General Motors started in the beginning with Sam McLaughlin back at the turn of the, the last century. Does it make sense? Yes. To you? Yes. No. 870-6400. Let's get her going on that note. There's a whole lot of program. We can discuss this in different permutations. We will with our panel, but I wanted to give you first crack, and then we'll get around to uh, some other stories that have made the uh, radar, including the uh, dastardly deed that uh, Melissa Todorovich committed back in 2009, prompting her then-boyfriend to go and kill an innocent girl she saw as a rival. She got day parole, and... Uh, how that's going to stand with a lot of people. We'll find out. Michael Lacey's going to join us. He's the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association here in Ontario. It's made the radar today. It has to do with a killing that took place back in 2009. I remember it full well because it wasn't too far uh, from my own hood there in East York. And uh, some of the principals uh, were known to good friends of mine, one of whom uh, coached baseball with the young man who committed first-degree murder at the behest of his then 14-year-old girlfriend who saw in the woman who was the victim, the young girl who was a victim, a rival. And uh, she was suggesting she would withhold sex and manipulated this guy. And uh, he went and murdered the girl, stabbed her uh, six times, I believe, on New Year's Day. She bled out in a, a, a snowbank. And so uh, now Melissa Todorovich, having been sentenced to the Grand Valley Institution in Kitchener, Ontario, Earlier today, uh, went up before the parole board, and they've determined that she should get day parole for the next six months. 
Let's find out uh, how this all works in the grand sweep of things. Joining me on the line right now, our expert in this regard, Michael Lacey, is the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario and a partner with the criminal law group, Browdy Thorning Zabaris. Michael, good to have you back on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, John. So, uh, Ms. Todorovic, uh, she was sentenced as an adult to first-degree murder, and uh, she's now 26. The adult sentence thing has me perplexed because while she was a minor at the time, uh, to call it an adult sentence, I don't understand that because the maximum she could have gotten was, what, 10 years or 7? Well, in fact, she got life imprisonment. <clears throat> so her, her sentence was life imprisonment, but unlike an adult in a similar circumstance, she was eligible to apply for parole after seven years. So a comparable adult wouldn't have been eligible for a first-degree murder conviction to apply for parole for 25 years uh, or longer, depending upon, well, in this case, it would have been 25 years. And then um, there, there's a you know a faint hope clause that you could perhaps apply after 15 years. But it's because she was a youth that she was eligible to apply for parole. And as you know, she did, in fact, apply for parole in this case. Yeah. Again, though, a life sentence, uh, you know, because we come to understand it to mean maximum now 25 years in this country, uh, unless you're a dangerous offender held at Her Majesty's pleasure. So it's not really life. It seems like a misnomer is my point. Yeah, but I don't think that's a fair characterization. I know that we people often talk about it that way, that, you know, first degree murder only gets you 25 years in jail. But the reality is that parole is not a foregone conclusion for people who are convicted of very serious crimes. Uh, in this case, of course, as you noted, she was 15 years of age at the time. And I mean, horrific circumstances. I also live uh, not far from East York, and this rocked the community. It obviously was horrible for the family that was involved and, and, the, and the, the victims. Uh, parents are still obviously not happy that any of this happened today. But at the same time, the parole authorities obviously we're dealing with someone who is almost double the age she was at the time that she committed these offenses. As I understand it, she's completed all of the available programming that was available at the federal institution where she was, and she was supported by the correctional authorities in her bid to obtain day parole. So this is a halfway house for a period of six months. Yeah, why only six months? Well, it's to see how she does in the community. Right. So there's no question this is a transition stage that the idea is you try to integrate someone back into the community. You see how well she responds to having some more freedom than she has now, how well she deals with the conditions associated with that day parole. And no doubt, you know, at the end of this six months, she'll either seek to have a further period of day parole or she'll seek to. Um, get full parole, which is a possibility in a case of this nature. My understanding is uh, the board found she still has some emotional and self-esteem issues. Yeah, they did. That's my understanding as well. And and I think what what struck them, though, as being important was that the correctional authorities said those issues are not going to be able to be dealt with within the federal penitentiary system because we don't have any more programming to offer her within our facilities. And we think the time is right for her to start integrating back in into the community, uh, being on strict conditions, monitoring her ability to have relationships with other people. I mean, these these are never difficult or sorry easy things for the public 
to accept when you look at a, a horrific crime like this and you look at the circumstances of the crime. But one of the underlying principles, especially with youth who are convicted of crimes is you, you hope that there is some hope of rehabilitation and in the right cases, reintegration back into the community. Although always when you have a life sentence, you're going to be subject to conditions of release in the community. Which is an interesting one because she's got to report any relationship she has with men while she's in that halfway house, right? That's my understanding. And, and the, the theory is that to the extent that she needs to, um, learn how to uh, have a relationship with, with men now that she's a, an adult and they want to have close supervision over that, given obviously the manipulative circumstances that gave rise to her offending conduct, the way she manipulated uh, the other uh, offender to commit the crime on her behalf. Well, and the parole officer, I guess, also found that she needs uh, work on gaining empathy and uh, she doesn't show a lot of emotion it sounds to me like she's still got uh, a ways to go to, you know, be capable of uh, being emotionally available. And it may, it may very well be. Obviously, I don't know the the personal circumstances of, of this woman, but it may well be that um, this six-month period of time in the community, that she does not demonstrate that she's able to grow in the way in which people might think she should be growing if she's ever going to be integrated back into the community. And it may be that she does not end up getting parole at the end of the day. Um, you know, again, I think I come back when you, when you look at the circumstances and I, I don't want to be the token apologist for the criminal justice system, obviously, but when I look at the circumstances here, as horrific as they are, you're dealing with a, a young woman who's, you know, on the verge of turning 30. She's 26 now. She was 15 at the time of the offense. And either we're going to just lock up people who commit really horrible crimes and throw away the key or we look at whether or not we have a somewhat of a responsibility as a community to try and rehabilitate people in these circumstances and give them the opportunity to reintegrate in some capacity. Yeah, but the obvious rejoinder to that is Stephanie Rangel, the victim, would have been in the very flourish or flower of young adulthood at 25, and uh, she doesn't get that opportunity. Nonetheless, I won't debate that because I know... No, I- you're absolutely right, though. Let me say, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and don't, I wouldn't want you or your callers to think somehow that um, what happened to the victim in this case or to the family should be forgotten in the assessment. Um, that's obviously an important consideration. It's obviously something that no doubt the parole board took into account. Well, and this is the ultimate question that we come away every time we have these discussions, either going into them or coming away from them. Is the punishment seen to be fitting the crime? And uh, I get back to that. I mean, I guess, you know, uh, you understand from the defense lawyer's perspective that parole uh, has to be availed uh, in usual cases, I guess, because uh, unless you just want to warehouse people indefinitely until they draw their last breath. But how do you feel on balance, you know, especially for young offenders? That's why I started by asking, you know, adult uh, sentencing, life sentence. But again, those seem mischaracterizations. You disabuse me of that. Well, every, everything that we everything that we know about uh, the way young people interact and the way young people think and the development of their brain is that you actually have to treat them differently than you do adults because neurologically they're different. And you know, you you, you may remember John or your your audience may be aware that in the United States, for example, when they were dealing with cases, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, Supreme Court of the United States, sorry, United States Supreme Court that dealt with the question of um, sending away young people who'd been convicted of murder 
um, with no possibility of parole for the rest of their lives. And there was a number of uh, uh, experts that were retained who gave evidence about the neurological development of children. And although there may be cases where people have to be locked up forever, uh, and that means never getting parole, the reality is it's as a matter of... uh, science to look at what a young person does who's not fully developed and say that's ex- on exactly the same par as as someone who's a, a fully mature adult is just apparently based on the science that's just not an accurate assessment and our youth justice system takes takes that into account in determining appropriate sentence ranges yeah they may we should have taken it into account when we legalized pot you know for 19 year olds because that youthful brain is still not developed but that never really made the radar yeah. all right <laughs> i'll leave that to other people well that's a different issue for another time but michael i appreciate your weighing in on this one and uh sort of giving us perspective or context as always uh your time is very valued and i appreciate your making some for us thank you john always okay. a pleasure michael lacy president of the criminal lawyers association here in ontario well, that's why I always wonder, you know, these young offenders and uh, if they're getting a pass, you know, with this adult sentencing and a life sentence. He said, no, you know, they could still be denied parole, although I can't really recall any incidents where they have been, you know, where you've had somebody commit some grisly deed at 14 and they're well into their dotage before they're let out of the joint. Never seen that unless they're, you know, ruled to be dangerous offenders and uh, they can't be rehabilitated and held indefinitely at Her Majesty's pleasure. We'll leave it for now because that's a story. She's got six months of day parole and I guess has to prove her worth in that regard. That's the other thing. You know, you sometimes wonder if these people who are working there to uh, help her integrate or reintegrate back into the community, you know, the John Howard societies and the Elizabeth Fry societies and all of these folk uh, are going to write glowing letters of recommendation. That always scares me. Maybe I'm too judgmental. Let's leave it for now. Uh, Let's find out the latest as to uh, GM and their sentiments here. Andrew Shear is the leader of the official opposition, and uh, he was talking to Washua earlier today, as I understand it. Mr. Shear, good to have you back on the Oakley Show. It's always great to be on, John. Thanks very much. Yeah. So tell me, uh, were you in touch with the folks at GM earlier today? I was. I actually went out there pretty early this morning to chat with some of the workers who are coming in to start their shift at 6 o'clock. I wanted to show uh, my support for them, the support of our of our party, uh, find out from them you know, what they had been hearing, what their immediate concerns were, and just to send the message that, uh, that we're going to keep fighting to do everything we can uh, to keep these jobs here in Canada. Well, what is it that the federal government could do, I mean, or provincial government, uh, should you ever be the leader uh, in the land, and I mean, it could be a year out, uh, what practically and reasonably could you do? Well, that's what everyone's minds turn to, you know, immediately they want to know what what can be done. Uh, So that's why I took the initiative to go out there. I had a meeting with management at uh, the plant, and then I had a meeting with representatives of, uh, of the union to kind of get both sides of of what, what what the challenges are. Uh, I believe what's going to happen is uh, as the auto sector goes in through this, this change where they're moving away from uh, sedans and, and traditional types of vehicles that consumers have uh, been moving away from into you know the, the larger vehicles, more fuel-efficient vehicles, and even some of the electric vehicles that are, are coming down the line, uh, that Canada is going to have to fight very hard to get those new product lines made here. And one of the things that, uh, that my message was that that uh, although it is true that there are no uh, units to be allocated at this time, when GM figures out what it is going to build, they're going to build it somewhere. 
And uh, I, we, we need to do everything we can to, to make sure that that's in Oshawa, that's in Ontario, that's in Canada. Uh, there are so many jobs that are uh, dependent on this assembly plant that we can't afford just to shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's, that's that then. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the electricity bill in Texas for uh, an assembly plant of a similar size is 75% cheaper than the assembly plant in Ottawa, thanks to Kathleen Wynne's energy pro- uh, policies. Uh, the carbon tax is going to add another cost to production lines. So when it comes time for different assembly plants to, to pitch, to bid for those product lines, we need to make sure that Canada is the most competitive place possible so we can keep those jobs here. All right, and let's pursue that then. Uh, how would you affect a competitive advantage or an industrial strategy that reflects that? Well, that's what the meetings are all about. You know, I, I don't believe that uh, just, you know, uh, we, we want to g- get away from just immediately going to uh, government subsidies, government bailouts. That's, that was something that was done uh, a few years ago while the entire sector was going through a systemic shock that affected all the, uh, the manufacturers. It wasn't just a one-off for one company. Uh, I, I had a great meeting with, with officials today on both sides, both management and, and, and union. And I think that there are some, some, some leverage that the government could have. And there's some policies that we could make that would make Canada a better place to invest and keep jobs, not just for the auto sector, uh, but for every industry. And, you know, I, I did mention the carbon tax. I think it bears repeating. When when you're adding uh, 3 to 5% cost right off the top, and an auto manufacturer is looking at, at Ontario, it's looking at Michigan, Ohio, and Mexico, uh, this all factors into it. So what I'm saying is right now we have a government that's taxing businesses out of uh, existence, and immediately the conversation turns to subsidizing it. Well, I'd say why let's let's skip both those steps, keep our taxes low, keep Canada the type of place that these companies want to stay anyway, and we could give our workers a fighting chance to keep this product line here. All right. And so more specifically then, uh we've got lower corporate taxes, I guess you're suggesting that. Uh how hydro uh I guess that's a provincial consideration, but would you work in concert with the Ford government to ensure that hydro rates are low or, or there's an industrial rate that's lessened? Uh, you know, I'm happy to work with my provincial counterparts on this. And, you know, I have to say, uh, Doug Ford's doing a great job to un- undoing a lot of the disastrous policies of Kathleen Wynne's government. It's, it's directly because of, of measures that, that Kathleen Wynne brought in with the disastrous, scandalous contracts, uh, the, uh, her cap and trade model that raised the cost of these things. You can't have a business that uses a lot of electricity uh, putting different pieces of cars together, competing against uh, Ohio and Michigan and, and Mexico, paying, you know, uh, almost double the cost of electricity. Electricity. And now federally, when we're talking about uh, carbon taxation going on top of that, that's just one more reason to put dollars elsewhere. And, you know, I have to, I have to say, you know, we had a, a budget this spring, uh, well after Donald Trump made big moves on uh, regulation and regulatory reform and, and taxation measures. And it took this liberal government, you know, 10 months to react to that, nine months to come up with anything uh, in comparison. So while all the boardroom tables are, uh, around the world were saying, you know, uh, where are we going to put our money? Uh, Canada was taking a wait-and-see approach. And, well, we've, we've waited, and now we're seeing jobs going to other countries. Again, Andrew Shearer is with us, leader of the federal opposition. Just to be clear, no more corporate subsidies then? You're not in favor of any of that? 
You know, I don't believe it's necessary. I don't. I don't think we. Uh, there are lots of policy options that we could be looking at. We could be looking at uh, incentives for for capital investment that, on the whole, uh, don't don't represent a subsidy. Where we could we could be talking about uh, ensuring that that our taxation models are are uh, aggressive and 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 put us in the same standing as other countries. And we can we should be looking at ways to reduce overhead. So you know, this is a liberal government that has raised payroll taxes. It has brought in regulatory ref- uh, changes that raise the cost of manufacturing and this new carbon tax is sending yet another signal uh, that Canada is not a very good place to invest right now under Justin Trudeau. Well, Donald Trump was signaling he wasn't too happy as well because in a couple of vital states to him, Ohio and Michigan, two plants are closing there. Uh, Actually, three if you count Detroit as well. So uh, is there some kind of prospect of working in concert with uh, Donald Trump to get the attention of General Motors, uh, you know, as a first salvo, like just to get them to come and recognize the impact of this. I mean, would you work in concert with him? Yeah, and well, I, I would hope I would hope that this government would be uh, at the very least fighting as hard as the U.S. president is. I mean, not not, not everything Donald Trump does is something that, that we want to emulate here. But for heaven's sake, when you've got uh, 2,400 workers facing the end of their 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 careers and you've got all the spinoff jobs uh, related to that, I don't know why Justin Trudeau's immediate conversation went to expanded EI for those getting laid off. I, I, you know, I think I think we needed to have, uh, and we it's not too late. I hope Justin Trudeau gets the message that. that there are other tools at the government's disposal. You know, the, the, there are loans that are on the books in the auto sector. It's not clear the government hasn't been transparent as to how much of that has uh, gone to GM. Uh, do they have any uh, parameters to do that? We just went through a uh, major renegotiation of NAFTA, and the auto sector was a big part of that. Uh, do they ha- are they exploring all these types of options to uh, put put leverage on GM to respect the contribution that Canadian workers and the Canadian government has made to that company? Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's unreasonable uh, in these early days to, to 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 not be giving up the fight. I, I that's that was my message to the workers this morning. It's my message to Justin Trudeau. Yeah, it's uh, equally not unreasonable to expect that maybe the electric or autonomous vehicle that GM is touting as the wave of the future be built right here in Oshawa as well. And that's my message, really. You know, this is a plant that has gone through several repurposing where they've switched uh, you know vehicles in the past. They've had significant investments from GM. Uh, They've got a state-of-the-art wind tunnel that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Uh, And what I'm saying is we need to give those workers a fighting chance that when when GM says, okay, this is the vehicle we're now going to be building, that those workers at, at Oshawa who have won awards for efficiency and productivity can say, well, build that here. Give us a chance to, to pitch, to, to, to put a bid in, to have those built here. Uh, we, as, as a government, as a government of Canada, can put them in the best possible position to win that argument if we make Canada a place where investors want to put their money into instead of take it out. And my fear is with Justin Trudeau, we've seen it, we have seen it in the energy sector, and now we're seeing it in manufacturing where uh, people are voting with their investment dollars and they're making the decision that with all the new taxes, with all the new regulations, with the, the spirit of we can't get anything done in this country, uh, they're pulling out. And that's unfortunate. And a conservative government would change that. I saw Navdeep Baines, who was uh, literally reeling in the House of Commons during question period. I mean, do we have an effective industrial strategy in this country? I think this liberal government strategy is always just to, to throw money at things. It makes for a very uh, expensive government uh, without getting the results for Canadians. So, you know, here's a government that's ra- literally raising taxes every way it collects it. Uh, and, uh, and then their answer for when there's negative impacts of that in the economy is to say, but don't worry, we're spending so much money uh, this way and that way. And I think we'd be better off 
if we had a, a government that just said we're gonna we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna have the government in the business of trying to pick winners or losers or try to predict what car people are gonna try to drive in four or five or ten years, but we are going to make Canada the type of place that investors are trying to fight to put their money into. That's the best thing we can do for long term job growth. And finally, I gotta ask: uh, There's an investor that you've taken on as a consultant, Kevin O'Leary. Uh, one time potential leader for the party. Of course, uh, you now are such. Uh, what's the thinking there? I mean, what role will he play? Well, you know, uh, Kevin and I got to know each other during the leadership race. He's obviously got a lot of uh, experience in, in, in business, and he's got a lot of uh, uh, ideas that he would like to see uh, put forward. Uh, but really, you know, he his uh, he's got a great relationship with a lot of uh, university campuses across the country. And so he said uh, to me, "Look, let's uh, let's go talk to some young people, some of the young people that are in various uh, faculties that have uh, have have followed him before because of his experience and and the types of speeches he gives." And so it's just uh, a, a, you know he. He's trying to help out. He wants to get rid of Justin Trudeau, too, because he sees it around the world. He, he, he travels a lot. He'll tell you. Um, he goes to other countries. And right now, nobody's looking at investing in Canada because uh, they just don't have confidence that things can get built. The government bought a pipeline. Can't get it built. The taxes are going up. The returns aren't there. And this government has done nothing to keep pace with what other countries, not just the United States, but other countries are doing to, uh, to, to fight to get those investment dollars and the jobs that flow with it. All right. Uh, really good to talk to you, as always. I appreciate your time and look forward to doing it again real soon, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You got it. Andrew Shear is a leader of the official opposition on this matter of General Motors and other such. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.